topic for a while uh, because Russians were effectively using them for uh, propaganda in the, in the other occupied territories in eastern Ukraine for a while now, ever since you know, 2014, 2015, effectively saying that, look, we don't have any Tochka Uz, um, all of these you know, bit parts of Tochka U missiles falling on, say, the city of Donetsk, and for example, that railway station by Kramatorsk um, a, a couple of months ago when the Russians bombed it as Ukrainians were evacuating. Um, now, Russians are basically saying, look, it can't be us. We don't have any of this equipment. And it's good to see that, you know, today they were launching, they, they were filming a launch from a vehicle with a nice big Russian flag uh, flying in the wind on the same vehicle, um, you know, effectively evidencing that uh, that they indeed do have Tochka U missiles, and uh, that just as everybody thought and everybody knew, uh, Russia is behind all of those uh, false flag attacks as well as the attack on Kramatorsk railway station, uh, despite their denial. Sherman, you brought. Hello, Doman. Uh, long time no see. Um... Yeah, to the Tochka U missile and the usage of it, um, it's generally right that Russia Russian forces uh, have uh, sorted it out in 2020. But um, at the start of the war, and it was already on the last week of February, so in the first days of the war, they uh, brought it back. Um, there are plenty of um, <clears throat> of blogs you can find reporting about that. You can even um, find um, videos uh, from Belarusian border and on on trains they brought it uh, um, to to Russia and then to Ukraine. And um, I knew this exactly because um, you mentioned the attack on the Kramatorsk um, train station, and I still have the. Um, horrible um, pictures of that in my mind and on this day I fought it, I checked my profile uh, one minute ago and I have around about uh, uh, 3,000 tweets made uh, you can be sure 1,000 of this was on this day fighting the Russian uh, disinformation about them saying yeah we don't have this we use uh, Iskander but they, they were short on Iskander very fast and so they brought it back there are plenty of evidences um, they are still uh, showing it uh, in in their propaganda videos. So that's just nonsense. They are using it. They brought it back. Thank you, Shamanti. Yeah, exactly. That that that's exactly right. Um, and as you say, they have been seen spotted in in other contexts. And when they have been, they were you know, effectively denied, uh, saying that they were instead being um, you know, either either these are Tochkas in Belarusian service, not Russian service, or. Uh, something along those lines. Um, but of course, all of that is very consistently uh, nonsense. Shaman, uh, I have a question for you, uh, since you're German. Um, what, what, how, do you, how do you see uh, Schultz's escapades over the last couple of days, uh, again saying no to Madras for Ukraine? Um, and and what, what is his reasoning this time around? Really, because now we see Canada pledging thirty-nine super bisons, which are you know infantry fighting vehicles with better capabilities than the mothers. I would venture, since seeing that they're markedly newer. Um, clear, have, has Schultz been called out in German media yet, or by German journalists yet, uh, for his persistent claim that there is some sort of NATO agreement not to send Western-made IFVs in main battle tanks? Actually, not, and his tactic or strategy on this works perfectly fine. He, I, I described it uh, 
some time ago, but I will do it again in the short version. So Scholz, um, whenever the pressure is high, uh, domestic pressure and um, pressure from our partners and friends, he will announce something, uh, a big announcement uh, always. And then um, he will relieve the pressure and um, waste time because what he's announcing is always... Uh, not ready for use and he needs some months or the ukrainians uh, need the training for it or something like this it's always like this and um i all i already said that before uh, my what i'm thinking is that scholz still thinks that the war will be over with something like a ceasefire or something like this before he have to deliver uh, the the real stuff and he can waste time and then he there's a he thinks there's a possibility to go back to normal so we'll make trade with russia and and especially maybe the gas uh, i'm he he didn't no no he's not getting called out not in the uh, proper way for what he's doing and um on the marders um I don't know. I mean, I saw today the people, but the, the, those were not Germans. This was uh, um, from international people um, calling uh, the Minister of Defense, Christine Lambrecht, from the same uh, party as Scholz, uh, calling her out um, for her statement uh, within uh, or in the parliament um, that the uh, um, Jeopards. Um, we we will send the jeopards soon, and they um, should only be used for um, protecting critical infrastructure. I mean that's um, stupid, and I think there's uh, they, they have still a conflict in their mind with um, German equipment, and we're speaking heavy equipment um, being used against Russian whatever. That's, I don't know if they think about history or something like this, but there's not, they are not called out. The problem indeed is that, um, I mean, the German media right now is talking about gas, possible shortages and stuff like this. And um, yeah, your strategy worked very well um, with the, um, not only the announcement, but uh, the actual uh, Panzerhaubitze 2000 being sent to Ukraine. Since then, it's quite um, quite silent here in Germany. I don't know all if quiet, actual... all quiet on the German front. Yeah, I, I just wanted uh, to ask you uh, to uh, correct me or to add something about this. But I say it's it's quiet. It's it's horrific. I'm with you. It's completely correct. On the point of Panzerhaubitze, um, earlier I got some notes from our friendly Swiss artillerist Pindolino. Um, who looked into it a little bit and um, watched the Bundeswehr videocast on the Panzerhaubitze 2000 use in Ukraine thus far. So apparently they are using um, smart one uh, smart munitions. Uh, the smart munitions are very interesting munitions. So it's, it's basically an artillery shell that has um, two sub-munitions inside it that descend by parachute. So you, you shoot your um, you shoot your round, and when it's flying over where you want it, where 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 you think there might be some uh, targets, um, it kind of disintegrates in air. Uh, there are two submunitions that descend by parachute, and when there is a target underneath one of the submunitions, it 
it launches uh, sort of a little missile downward from it uh, that then hits, say, a tank from up top, um, uh, where where the where the armor is less strong, uh, which is just very fascinating. It looks very interesting indeed. Um, so they're using those. They're using a lot of those smart uh, 155 munitions, and that probably means that they're going, according to our Swiss artillerist, uh, after individual targets. There have been no casualties among the Panzerhaubitze thus far, even though they have experienced some counter-battery fire. Um, and apparently the database for the Panzerhaubitze has been upgraded and updated with all of the munitions and propellants information for all the theoretically possible Western supplier. Um, so it's uh, it's very good to to hear that the Panzerhaubitze, the 12 that I believe are in theater, are all in good shape, good form, and are doing a good job. It's German equipment. What else would you expect? For it not to have yet been delivered. No, no, German equipment normally comes on time where the Germans want it. You are completely mistaken. This is just the view currently because Germany has not yet accepted this as its own war. If this were Germany's war, trust me, it would be won. Since some German Yeah, that's what the Germans need to uh, accept. They have, for the first time in 110 years, they have the chance to be on the right side of history and support the right and righteous course. And if they fail now at this opportunity, this will never be deleted. This will be a continuous mark. I have a question for Axel um, regarding the the war. Um, When do you expect to see the uh, front lines as they are now uh, in the east? When they are going to to recede or recede towards Russia? Because a lot of people uh, are, are... uh, we hear a lot of positive news, things exploding, ammunition dumps, but they are still worried that there's no movement in the front lines, or very little. Could you elaborate on that, if it's possible? I think the question may, might be answered may, or asked many times, but still. Yeah, I could, but it would be speculation. I mean, I have a view on this, my personal view, and I'm not sure that it, this is the most um, sensible view to extol here. I think... In the discussion upcoming with Mick Ryan in a few days, and in another discussion with uh, um, our chaps on Tuesday with uh, Jeff Fisher, we can talk a little bit about the picture uh, as to both the air campaign, which is about to start, and then after, let's say, a good 10 days into this with HIMARS and long-range artillery in place, you will see a change in posture, not just the attrition which you see now with the operational pause, which the Russians have declared when supposedly they've had such a victory, which they didn't, because Lizzie Chance is not a victory. Lizzie Chance is a withdrawal in order to preserve forces on the dearly. They have lost more than 7,400, 7,400 men in that time frame. And uh, at the same time, they are now re- losing the ammunition depots railway switchyard and if the move uh, both in the north towards Kupiansk is successful and the rail juncture can be cut off um, that will change the overall capacity for Russia to prosecute its war campaign so bringing them very close to what we call combination and um, so the rest is at the disposal of the Ukrainian armed forces and they will 
run this campaign professionally as they've done so far. So let's um, have this discussion together with Jeff and then with Mick Ryan, and I'm quite sure we'll come to a decent conclusion because in the next couple of days, you'll see massive shifts already. We will see a lot of gestures of goodwill from the Russian side to make it short. Yeah, so, so that's kind of what I was proposing, Sherman, to you, but, um, you know, I think Ukrainians should really learn from Snake Island and see what it needs to engender some goodwill with Russians, what it takes, right? With the case of Snake Island, it took about four or five days of consistent bombardment with long, with long range artillery and rocket artillery. And suddenly Russians were full of goodwill that they were, they were distributing around. Uh, clearly, Ukrainians just need to, you know, uh, repeat that in other theaters of operation and um you know out of sheer goodwill russians are going to uh um move away from uh, from those areas Oli. Hey, hey hey guys so um with you guys talking about everything it brings me to the question of when um I, who who was speaking about the number of russian soldiers dead and it makes me think like who 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 how do they feel? They are like the mothers who are losing their kids and they are not saying anything and they are actually justifying the war. What kind of human beings are these? That's what I'm just thinking about. There's no kind of protests there and yet men and men, Russian people are dying. So there's a couple of factors here. So <clears throat> the first factor is quite a lot of Russian casualties are not the regular Russian army, if that makes sense, right? Russia is using a very sort of hybrid approach to, to the construction of their armed forces in Ukraine. Um, a good chunk of those armed forces are, you know, Wagner, Liga, whatever they might be called now, uh, PMC. Um, so they, they, as far as the Russians are concerned, they don't count as Russian dead, right? Uh, because they're not a part of the regular military. And more importantly, and far more insidiously, um, there is a very considerable chunk, and it's difficult to estimate just how large it is, but there's a very considerable chunk of Ukrainian men from the occupied territories, either long-time occupied territories in Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts, as well as some more newly occupied territories and some completely freshly occupied territories uh, being forced and forcibly conscripted um, on the Russian side. Right. Uh, and again, as far as Russians are concerned, as far as the Russian government is concerned, they do not count as, as Russian dead. Now, it doesn't mean that the Russian government isn't lying about how many um, troops it's losing. Of course they are, because they last released the numbers sometime in March and it was about 1,300 dead that they were reporting. Um, and then no news came out about that from Russia until a couple of weeks ago, where I think in the... In, um, in an interview with Moskovsky Komsomolets, uh, which is a, which is a news outlet in, in Russia, um, basically means uh, Moscovite young communist. Um, th they were interviewing the head of the Russian State Duma, that is parli the parliament, uh, their defense select committee, uh, an ex uh, or retired colonel general who also used to be, I think, a, de a deputy defense minister or something along those lines back in the day. And he said, well, you know, the, the Russian Ministry of Defense has not reported additionally on uh, killed in action in, in Ukraine uh, because there haven't been any since March or basically haven't been any since March uh, because of a change in how they approach uh, the, the war. Uh, there's plenty of wounded, but, but no more dead. 
practically no more debt. There were, therefore, there was no need to update the numbers, right? Which is a ridiculous statement to make because it is very clear that there are very many Russian casualties. And even if you say that the most exposed um, frontline positions are either these mercenaries uh, from, from Wagner or uh, largely populated by those forcibly, forcibly conscripted and occupied territories, which is genuinely, you know, against every bit of international law when it comes to, to how wars are supposed to be fought and allowed to be fought, right? Um, you certainly cannot conscript people in occupied territories to then go and fight against their own country. Uh, that, that's it. I mean, that's it. it it's, it's so absurd that few people even have thought of that as a, as a possibility, right? Uh, but even if, if you, you think know, that... Norman, do you want to yes. add one more thing, uh, just as an interview? Probably. Uh, to, no, to explain to Oli, one thing, because you asked, what are these mothers? You have to understand that a large part of the committed forces of the Russian army are from minorities and thus former occupied territories. These are Buryat and the likes. So they're from various areas in Russia which suffer from great poverty, where the families live in the garrison and they are easily suppressed. So there is another insidious motive in this. It's not the troops from St. Petersburg and its region. It's not the troops from Moscow and its surrounding areas. It's not even many of the troops from Kazan, from Tatarstan. No, it's troops from other areas. Uh, yes, they have been in garrisons such as Pskov, uh, which is close to Estonia, Pleskov, but they are originally not from those regions. They've been conscripted from other parts. Dagestan, um, Ossetia, Chechnya, the likes. Go through the whole regions, go through the uh, far eastern district. This is where they come from. Yeah, understood. And I had one last thing to ask. It's it's regarding oh am I forgetting I'm so focused sorry yeah so it's regarding Wagner and, and it's now official I did some digging today and Wagner happens to officially have a, a, a military a base in Mali now and I guess you, you guys should keep your ears around Mali there are going to be war crimes happening in Mali very soon well the French should send a few Mirage and take it out. Exactly, exactly was exactly what I was thinking about. Yeah, make them not be just a Mirage. Uh, yeah, to the Russian mothers, uh, I, I have seen more videos um, on YouTube from uh, catched calls um, with with their families. The families were always upset about the messenger meaning the Ukrainians, and not about the fact that their sons, fathers, husbands, or whatever, brothers, are killed. They're more upset about the Ukrainians uh, telling them that. I think that's a very good point to highlight, Roman Um It's a very odd situation, right? It, there, there were many of us, myself included, very much myself included, who from the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine kept thinking, like, back in the 1980s, the Soviet Union was in Afghanistan for um, almost a decade, for almost a full decade. In the course of that decade, uh, something like 14,000, maybe 15,000 Soviet troops in total were killed. But Russia is not the Soviet. Russia has about half of the population. Russia there has about half as many people as the Soviet Union did. And more importantly, Russia only has about 
a third as many young men as the Soviet Union did in the 1980s, right? So we thought, okay, so when, you know, when Russians reach about 5,000 killed in action, that is about proportionately as many as they have lost in Afghanistan in the decade, right? Once they hit 15,000, as many as the Soviet Union had lost in Afghanistan in the 1980s, you know, we're, we're not just that the absolute number catches up, but now we're three times as many, right? It's proportionally speaking, adjusted for, for relevant populations. Um, now it's nearing 40,000. Now we're in sort of eight times as many, proportionally speaking, uh, as, as Russia has lost in Afghanistan, right? That is, a lot of us, myself included, very much, we're just waiting for, you know, those mothers committees to spring back up and, and say no and, and be against uh, the, the senseless sending of their sons into, into, into death. Uh, for colonial conquest, effectively. But it just didn't happen, and didn't happen, and didn't happen. And well, Axel highlighted the background of the people who are uh, the ones being you know, sent to war, the ones being killed disproportionately, is the lowest possible socioeconomic standard, as well as not ethnic Russians. Not, not everyone, of course. There are ethnic Russians among them, but they are relatively few. Those who are, they're generally officers, they're, they're generally career soldiers. It, it feels different, perhaps, to them as well. Um, CJ was highlighting this earlier today. Uh, you know, the proportion of dead coming from places like Moscow and St. Petersburg, especially coming from middle-class backgrounds in Moscow and St. Petersburg, almost none. Compared to, say, those from Tuva, or Buryatia, or Dagestan, maybe, you know, Kazakhs from Astrakhan Oblast and the like, almost none. Um, the Soviet war in Afghanistan was a lot more, let's say, equal opportunity in that respect. A lot more, not entirely, of course, but, but a lot more. Um, whereas now, it's, it's almost as though Russia is sort of getting rid of the undesirables within its own ranks to some degree as well, right? Not only do they not care, they're, they're, they're probably quite happy with it. You know, they, they would have preferred to keep more troops, of course, but they, they seem to actually be quite happy with um, decimating the ranks of the people that they they don't partic- they don't care for at all in the first place. Um, I think it was Marshal Zhukov uh, back during the Second World War who said, you know, uh, the the mothers will birth more soldiers. I, I don't care how many die, um, and that seems very much still the approach of the Russian military. Um, no. Again, eight times as many Russian Federation resident citizens have perished thus far in Ukraine, you know, proportionally speaking, adjusted for generational sizes and so on, compared to the war in Afghanistan that lasted a decade. And we are only four and a half months. Oli, Oli? Sorry, I'm, I'm trying to remember what I was saying. Um, Reva can go ahead. Right, Reva, good okay, morning. Okay, so, sorry, I've, I've remembered it. It's it's about, I've not, I've, I, in the beginning of this senseless war, I saw someone documenting about um, you know, kind of mixed race Russians fighting and Africans fighting for Russia. Have any of you have any idea what what it's like and like anything again popping up of mixed race Russians like Black Russians fighting for Russia? So there have been a few, a handful of reports. Um, remember that I, I don't know how familiar you are with the situation, but. Um, being non-white in Russia is a decidedly 
unpleasant existence, right? Whether you're from Central Asia or whether you're from, um, you know, a Black African background, right? There, there's there's a reasonable number of uh, both mixed race and Black African Russians because of Soviet Union history, etc. Right? There being quite a number of um, students from allied countries, countries allied to the Soviet Union, who went to, off to study in Moscow. Um, but the the sheer levels of you know violence and harassment on an everyday level in the streets, in the subways, etc., by um, effectively Russian neo Nazis and other similar groups is you know reaches incredibly high levels. Um, there are a few. There are certainly a few, uh, including you know current African students who went to study in, in Russia over the last few years who actually joined up and are uh, fighting on the Russian side, but. Um, I think that their numbers might be, you know, in, in the tens, maybe not tens of thousands, but tens, maybe hundreds. It's not probably particularly, um, particularly significant in that respect. Um, Raver. Hey, good morning, Donovan. Hey, um, so how much faith, though, can we put in the idea that, that white Russians aren't dying, given how bad the, the Western military districts were mauled? and how white Russians tended to be concentrated in units like the VDV that got just absolutely uh, pasted. Um, now, and I, yeah, people from Moscow and St. Petersburg may not be dying, but there's a lot of other areas of Russia that have a lot of white soldiers that I think are just getting framed. And I, I was one of the ones that was like, hey, the, the, the mothers' committees are going to shut this down. I was absolutely wrong. Uh, there's apparently they no longer have a voice. And it's a very different uh, domestic political situation compared to the end of the Soviet Union, right? Towards the end of the Soviet Union, Gorbachev had already been on his French holiday and had already been kind of disillusioned with the Soviet Union already. It was a lot easier for those mothers' committees to operate simply because there wasn't that strong a political will from the top. Whereas now there's a very strong political will from the top of Russia, of Russian politics uh, that, you know, A, made it all illegal. Uh, for for those to even meet and, and to exist, but also, you know, it's making them it's making it very difficult to operate. Uh, let alone, you know, the, the the zeitgeist in which they live in Russia being um, a lot more, let's say, pro imperial. Um, let's go. To, actually, Raver, I know you're going to be sure. Let's go to Raver first, and then back, back to finance. I was going to answer Raver's question. Oh, okay. Finance. Do you want to wanna jump in? And um... yeah, sure. So early in the war. Um, your intuition is absolutely right. We did see a number of casualties concentrated in the ethnic Russian districts, ethnic Russian military districts, and it was almost entirely from the VDV um, getting their asses put six feet underground where they deserve to be in Ukraine. Um, and that does, but it was still an incredibly limited number of total deaths compared to the total deaths from. Uh, the ethnic minorities, which still make up a huge bulk of their armed forces. Now, as this war has continued on, and as Russia has, like early on the war, the first couple months, with the exception of those ZDD units, almost all casualties were coming from minorities. Um, that said, now that the war has continued on, and we're seeing Russians increase their, uh, you know, their recruitment way more heavily throughout ethnic Russian regions. I mean, there's even a, a recruitment post in like downtown Moscow, downtown St. Petersburg. Now that we're seeing that kind of actions, I would expect that as the war continues on, our number of um, 
dead uh, ethnic white Russians will increase. That said, whether they're counted by the government might be a totally different question, given that if you're a Wagner or Liga, as they're now called, mercenary, are you really going to be counted by the government as a dead? They like to hide those numbers kind of thing. Um, but certainly uh, early on, that was the case. There was only minorities. Now, as the war continues grinding on and they're recruiting far more heavily from the white Russian districts, uh, you should see those death tolls rising. The other reason you're not seeing the mothers groups uh, quite so active yet is that they don't have mass conscription and forced mobilization, especially of elite, social, you know, high social capital, right? A fancy way of saying the, the sort of upper classes of Russia, where people have the ability to mobilize in ways that are that that can be heard, seen, etc., in and outside of Russia. If you if they just stick to the uh, more oppressed classes, there's not so much they can do besides complain on Yandex, and no one outside of Russia is listening. So that's sort of my view on why we're not going to see the Russians anytime. Sorry, why are we not the Russian mother group? I, 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 so uh, thank you for that. A um, couple of things I'd like to throw in, then I'll go back to being quiet. Um, I think uh, the number of, of dead whites on the Russian side would scale dramatically if anybody was tracking uh, the casualties out of the breakaway republics. Uh, I think they're being depopulated. And back to the mothers' committees, they still had power when Putin came to power because they were able to force him to invite in foreign rescue vessels uh, during the Kursk disaster. And that voice seems to have vanished. Yeah, Putin's not a fan of anybody having agency. This is Russia, right? So uh, anyone who comes from the bottom and is able to civically organize and force the government to do something, um, you should expect them to find their leadership in a gulag, assassinated, falling out of a window, etc. Um, this also happened with the uh, with with like the ethnic Russian uh, warlords that showed up in the separatist areas of Ukraine. Um, and absolutely, the Russians are not counting the forced conscripted Ukrainian citizens in their army as Russian dead or as white Russian dead. So you are absolutely correct that that is not being counted. And they don't consider, you know, this is a genocidal war, right? Like they, they, they view they view even murdering their own people that are that are from Ukraine as a benefit. That's why they're giving them World War One era rifles and telling them to walk straight into fire. No, exactly. And this is, you know, just one more illustration. I keep coming back to this of why assuming and thinking and conceiving of Russia as a normal country is a really bad idea because they're really not. War pigeon. Hi guys, uh, really interesting discussion. Uh, I have a question. Um, is anybody aware of any attempts to reach out information-wise to the different minorities in Russia, which are overrepresented in the invasion forces, uh, to make these populations more aware of uh, the role that they're playing and uh, well, sacrificing you know, sacrifices that they're uh, that they're having. Uh, just to build a greater Russian state, uh, because it seems like the logical thing to do. You know, it's uh, uh, I imagine the populations of Buryatia and and Tatarstan and and the different Caucasus republics uh, 
they're being fed propaganda, but uh, but it might be a very good thing to 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 think about. You know, if 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 those populations can be reached somehow first, because you know the, the truth is important, and the second because. Well, it could probably stir quite a lot of trouble for Putin if, if the Buryats were made aware that the uh, countless bodies that are returning from Ukraine are not uh, what's happening in the rest of Russia, that they're paying a much higher price for Putin's uh, imperial ambitions than the people of Moscow or, or St. Petersburg. Um, so my question is, you know, is... Uh, uh, are there any, is anybody, anybody aware of any uh, just sources in their languages or even in Russian, but uh, targeting those populations to share the truth with them? Favor? So I know at least one uh, journalist, may have been a citizen journalist, had used uh, uh, photos of uh, uh, Asian Russian soldier, tracked him down. Uh, ID-wise, was able to contact his wife, and she absolutely refused to believe that they were engaged in war crimes and said she was going to report it to the FSB. That fits with historical norms. Um, look at the, 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 the British regiments raised out of India during the colonial period. Um, unless there's a, an organic nationalist movement inside of those regions, they see themselves as part of the empire. They may be discriminated against, but they still see it themselves. That is still their country. Uh, black soldiers in World War One and World War Two, horribly disenfranchised at home, any of them would have stuck a knife in Hitler or the Kaiser without batting an eye. They were still American. And so until there is an organic local uh, liberation movement, it's going to fall on deaf ears. I think that's right. Follow up, if I may, but there can't be any such movement without access to information. So I, that's what I'm asking about, you know, because the people will not rise up in, in Buryatia if they just don't know that uh, it's not the case in the rest of Russia that there that, that so many soldiers are coming back dead. Uh, they might, uh, and you know, it's it's Putin's internal propaganda machine, right? It's it's a hidden truth that we know, but they don't know. So, you know, I just just a thought, you know, throwing it in, it in there that uh, if we were to make uh, things a bit uh, more difficult for for the Kremlin, it would probably, you know, kind of uh, sharing true information with the minorities in Russia about the role that they're playing and, and the the over-representation of, of, of their dead among all the Russian dead. Uh, would probably be a good idea to start uh, because, yeah, they think of they're being programmed to think of themselves as as Russians in in their schools, but uh, still their their identities uh, exist and and uh, you know it's that uh, they are aware that they're being discriminated against in many other ways in Russia in the Russian Federation, but they probably might not be aware of the fact that they that. Uh, Basically, Putin is also uh, mass murdering them uh, in a very insidious way by forcing them to commit genocide in Ukrainians. But uh, you know, but probably if the, the information was to, uh, if this narrative were to reach 
the, the, the minority populations in Russia, that the focus would probably need to be on, uh, look what Putin is doing to you. He's de depopulating Buryatia, he's uh, uh, depopulating Chechnya again, or, or Dagestan. Uh, and uh, I just don't know if um, if such attempts are, are being made, and, and, and I'm quite curious about it, you know. Uh, so, yeah, thanks. So, broadly speaking, I think there is just at least a little bit of awareness of that, specifically in Buryatia. Um, but at the same time, they are, you know, the, the, the ones who volunteered from Buryatia from the start are at the bottom end of the socioeconomic ladder of one of the poorest regions in Russia. And incidentally, a region that shouldn't be nearly as poor as it is because it's one of the major centers of natural resource extraction in Russia, except all the um, you know, wealth generated by that ends up in pockets of uh, oligarchs who previously spent a whole lot of their time on yachts in the Mediterranean in London. Um, and nowhere near Buryatia ever. Um, but yeah, let's uh, let's run through Raver and then Leonard and Shermanthi. Raver. Yeah, I was going to say, and I, granted this information is months old at this point, but Rob Lee, when he was tracking uh, Russian casualties early in the war, some of his best sources of information were in these ethnic minority regions because they were accurately or more accurately uh, reporting their losses. So these people know who's dying. Um, they're they're going to the funerals. The funerals are being published. I just don't think that 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 the organic sense of themselves as other than Russian is there yet. If I may, just just very quickly, the the, the sense of being a separate uh, identity uh, in Buryatia exists for sure because even uh, even the religious uh, differences are you know uh, too too difficult to overcome. The the Buryats are mainly Buddhist. Uh, so then, and they're, I think, one of the, the only one or, or, or one of the only two, I think, minorities in, in the Russian Federation that, that are. So, so um, you know, it's, it's hard to pretend that they're like the, the, the majority of Russians, even in this respect. There's some um, Kalmyks and Tuvans and, and a few others as well, but, but yeah. Um, okay, let's, uh, let, let's hear from more people. Let's, uh, let's go to Leonard and then Shermant in August. Uh, Leonard. Uh, oh, thank you, Dolman, uh, and good morning. Uh, I just wanted to make a brief reference to uh, the uh, the comments that uh, General Ben Hodges had made when he was on, and it was specific reference to the kind of the, the rates of attrition and the whole concept of uh, culmination. And it, it I would just uh, kind of echo uh, General Hodges' assessment uh, that he he clearly uh, uh, indicated that he couldn't he didn't see how this could go on indefinitely at this rate of attrition specifically uh, for the Russian forces, and uh, I believe he had indicated that he expected to see the the direct effects of this uh, towards the end of July and into into August, so for the summer. And I, I would just submit that. Uh, you know, there's there's an old there's an old concept uh, within that goes back into uh, old Royal Navy days of paying the butcher's bill on large scale sea battles and and naval encounters, and I would submit that that's precisely what the Russians are engaged in right now. They are paying the butcher's bill, and I don't uh, see how 
um, Putin, regardless of what level of control and what level of tyrannical kind of stranglehold he may have on media sources and political sources and the cabals even within St. Petersburg and, and Moscow, um, at some point, uh, with the kinds of numbers we're seeing, uh, 40,000, and and if you take into account the the, the d- disabled and the uh, wounded um, impacts beyond that, it's just, it's incon- to me, it's inconceivable that the Russian population would bear this. And I would just uh, kind of close out by noting that uh, even uh, at the outset of op- Operation Barbarossa, when, when the... Uh, the, the Wehrmacht uh, hit the Russians in the east with uh, virtually three million mechanized and, and support, uh, essentially a, a military force of three million. And they decimated the Russians within a matter of less than three months. There were two million Russians gone, eliminated from the, from the battle space. Um, and at that point, uh, like they scrambled long and hard to find sufficient replacements to beef up uh, and and put any kind of an army in the field. Now they did it in those days in the Stalin era. They did it, and they scraped up another two million combatants. But in today's Russia, uh, given what what has already been said with regard to Uryats and the the ethnic uh, uh, groups that Putin seems to be trying to exploit in the present ukraine situation uh, they don't have that option anymore I, you know they where are they going to fill these holes from that's you know i think that's uh, a, a critical question i'll leave it at that thing thanks Leonard. And, and we kind of see where they've started to let's say fill the holes from right um the force conscription the extensive force conscription in the occupied territories for a start uh, and this seems to very much be their uh, the the core of their strategy here Right. Um, War Pigeon, you're hot micing, I think. And let's go to Shermantri. Yeah, thank you. First of all, sorry for possible background noises. I'm sitting in a bus and um, uh, I'm wearing a mask, so I hope uh, you can hear me uh, although loud and clear. Um, it's okay, yeah. Okay, so I would okay, so I would sneak the mask off and I would try and maybe it's better. Um, I have few problems with this idea of a grassroots movement in Russia, um, Russia and Putin, but I will show us an example. What else can we uh, try to uh, uh, force on? So, first of all, I would say Russia, what, is, what does Russia, uh, what is the amount of time zones Russia has? I mean, if I remember correctly, they have nine time zones. So, to get you as a Russian from uh, for a, a, a small village um, somewhere in in the east or on the outsides of Russia, um, it would need you a plane. So most of the people there can't even afford this. Um, we're speaking of a pop- of a part of population who is not wealthy, maybe educated, or too old to have smartphones and the connection to the internet. Maybe we are facing a uh, lacking uh, lack of um, English skills, so we should we have to translate the, the message then. 
and then uh, we are facing even if we are able to bring the message then we have the problem of what maybe pro per little village with uh, 500 people living there 10 families um, sitting somewhere in the east and not not being able to go to St. Petersburg or to Moscow or whatever and I think the people who would be capable to organize some grassroots movement in Russia um, are all either in prison, dead, or in exile. And the problem is, at least half of them are not even criticizing Putin or the government in our sense of way. They are criticizing, and that's the most critics I can see on the internet uh, from Russian people, that Russia or Putin and the government is not pushing hard enough in Ukraine. That's the loudest critics I can see. They're not saying, uh, oh, we should stop the war, that's horrific. And that's what people um, probably think um, at home when they uh, speak to the, the ones they can trust. But um, what you can see on the internet, um, and there are several um, famous uh, people, at least in Russia, um, with um, high um, Telegram uh, followers, you can check this, and you will see them asking Putin, hey, why uh, there is no uh, mobilization, why there is no um, uh, full war economy, why we still don't have air superiority, why we don't uh, have the more weapons here, and the alternative would be because I don't see, even if there's a grassroots movement, I don't see them able to change uh, the politics of the Kreml. Um, it's, the Kreml is um, thinking strategic. They won't uh, interrupt uh, just because of uh, whatever. We are not talking about the democratic states uh, like the UK, where uh, Boris Johnson can get high pressure and then he has to resign. Um, so, but when there will be a change in the politics that will come from the so-called Siloviki, from the oligarchs and from the military circles around um, Putin and carrying him. So we have to um, try to force their opinion of the war, their, um, their calculation of costs and profits in this. And um, the best thing we can do this is um, to pressure our own governments here, where we live, um, to get more sanctions done, to um, reduce our energy consumption from Russia, etc., etc. I have to end my message soon because I have to get out of the bus. Um, because this will have um, uh, a pressure on the oligarchs. That's the best uh, op option in my thinking. I'm done. Thank you, Shimanfi. Uh, I won't respond quite yet because I want to go to August before she drops again. August. August. Uh, thank you. Good. Yeah, I've, I've been having, yeah, I've been having trouble with Twitter Spaces, so I apologize. I know I've missed some stuff, so I'm hot. I hope I'm not repeating, but I don't think there's going to be any particular uprising from mothers or anybody else in Russia because I, I feel that the country is uh, morally bankrupt. It's a systemic moral. Uh, cultural issue that the country has that uh, the level of corruption in there they know what's going on they know you know communities now the ethnic minorities I know there was a few mothers that got together and um, 
protested. I know um, there's several disadvantages there, not in the bigger cities, but they even know in the bigger cities, um, I think they have an idea of what's going on uh, with the soldiers dying. And I think what's particularly telling when you listen to some of the intercepted conversations between the sons and the mothers or even their spouses, where I've seen um, in some occasions where mothers have tried to like pay off uh, somebody to get their son moved to another unit or for them to come home. But a lot of them, the sons are pleading and just saying that they're going to uh, leave or uh, and the mother is the mother is like saying, no, 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 you stay. And the son is saying, like, well, I'm going to die. And they're like, no, stay, <laughs> you know, stay with your unit. So I don't know if it's the shame or the concern or whatever it is. But I just think that it, no matter what we do to try to uh, influence it through media or any kind of propaganda campaigns or anything, it's just a different culture. We're trying to put our own frame of reference and thinking how outraged or how we would feel with a culture that doesn't uh, feel or behave in the same way. And um, that's uh, mainly what I was thinking. Thank you, August. Um Yeah, I, I don't think there's very good chances of any, um, you know, just as Sherman was saying as well, of, of a grassroots, um, you know, revolt in that respect. Um, the political climate, and I don't mean just high in political climate, but on, on an everyday uh, personal level, political climate in Russia is just so very different to how it was in the 1980s or how it was uh, when the curse went down around 2000, 2001, whenever that was. Um, it, it just doesn't seem possible. Um, and it, it, it seems as though the, the zeitgeist, the, the zeitgeist that they're trapped in, um, you know, particularly non-conducive to any such uh, to any such movements, Raven. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, just going to point out that when we're we're talking about morale, um, it, it's a pretty nebulous thing. Armies engaged in positional battles can suddenly lose their morale and break. It happened to France and Russia both in 1917. But in other cases, uh, no matter how horrendous it gets, the armies just don't seem to break. Uh, the British through World War One, uh, the Iranians in the Iraq-Iran War. Uh, there's the, figuring out where the breaking point is in a positional battle for morale is something that uh, people will have been arguing about for a long, long time and will continue to argue about. And I don't think anybody's ever found a way to really quantify, okay, if we apply this pressure here, this will lead to this result. And so we could be in for a very, very long war, uh, irrespective of casualties, because we don't know where Russia's breaking point is. Or even if, you know, if, if there is a breaking point, if that, if that breaking point um, can be actionable or actionalized, um, however we might want to put that. Um, anyway, um, anyway, let, let's, let, let's go to August, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to formulate my thoughts better. Yeah, I, I don't think there's going to be any uh, breaking point probably within Russia until they lose. I think that's what's going to be their breaking point. I think they'll sacrifice as many men and resources that they have at their disposal. But I think when they actually lose, and I believe that they will lose this war, they'll be forced to stand down just from the sheer fact that they, they've lost and the rest of the world, you know, if it continues to stand behind Ukraine, like I hope it will, 
it'll just be um they're just going to have to it'll just be the losses are too great and they're not going to be able to make any headway and they'll get pushed back into russia i i, I don't i think that's the way that probably um uh, that they're going to that's probably the only way that they're going to um uh stop i guess i don't know what the better word is i, th I think you're quite right and this is why it's so important to get ukraine the arms they need to actually deliver a resounding military defeat to russia in Ukraine and, and, and kick Russia forcibly out of the occupied territories in the east of Ukraine, the south of Ukraine, and Crimea, right? I, I think that that really is, and August, I think you and I agree on this uh, quite clearly, th this is the one way. What happens afterwards in Russia, honestly, we'll see. It's not necessarily, uh, necessarily any of our business, uh, what happens next, but um, yeah, very, very true. Charmanti. Thank you, August, for what you are saying, because I think you are exactly right. They need to fail. They need to realize that they failed, that their whole system failed, because I think every other outcome of this war will just lead to the pause of their imperialistic plans and delay their um, the delay the time they will start uh, restart this uh, war maybe on even other countries and uh, continue with it that's not a not a solution we should aim for we should aim for a total devastating military loss from uh, in from russia in ukraine and they should as hard as it may sound they should face even afterwards, the economical consequences of it. They have to fail. There is no other solution. We can't deal in the 21st century. We can't deal with a country um, like this anymore. We have to concentrate. There are even some other countries like this. Um, and uh, at least one is also the same level of, of dangerous. So we have to concentrate. We need to um, to focus on other things, not uh, some some problems, even not uh, military. And so every everything uh, um, politician like uh, my Chancellor Olaf Scholz is aiming for is a failure. And um, what August uh, was saying is completely right. They need to fail. They need to realize that that's the most, I mean, I'm German. I could um, hold you now a referent about um, what uh, led to um, the current Germany um, since the World War II. But the main part was that Germany failed. I mean, we can't occupy Russia for good reasons. I think everybody here knows it. Um, but I will close my statement. And uh, since I have to leave uh, now, uh, even as a listener, I will wish you all a good uh, weekend. Um, rest um, as much as you can. Um, stay, stay with uh, supporting Ukraine. And uh, yeah, don't just be patient for more HIMARS and MRS. Ukraine will win this. Thank you, Shemantri. Um Let's go to Yanis and then MP, and then we'll go back to August. Yanis. Yes, hello. Yeah, I totally agree with the previous speaker uh, uh, on, on this subject, uh, and uh, I want to comment just that they are like serial killers. Uh, 
and uh, they cannot change what they are uh, in Russian. So the only way to protect others is uh, just to contain and I'm closed space. And, and uh, regarding uh, what are the headlines for Russian when they when they consider that they should stop, I guess there is no uh, no such lines for them. Uh, I uh, once I already spoke here about uh, what do they consider the greatest achievement for for Russia is like win in, in in Second World War, and uh, then the main principle there was like. No, no step back, Michel 